The Spirit of God reveals the unconventional wisdom of God. Not like the conventional wisdom of man, not like the uh, assumed things of humanity. This is unusual stuff. And to human eyes, the unconventional wisdom of God appears as folly. Foolish. Ridiculous. Why would anybody do things this way? And to prove his point, right at the beginning, Paul introduces three examples. And this is our God's eye view, uh, our overview. And the first example is this. If, you, if you've got something to write with, you might jot these down. Paul begins with the folly of a crucified Christ. The folly of a crucified Christ. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. Paul very, very clearly understands that to the Jews, it's a stumbling block, a scandalon. And to Gentiles, it is foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. But it is folly to the natural man. Foolishness. Who on earth would paint a hero this way? Now, I understand heroes, whether in myth or in history, heroes often will give their lives for something, but not like this. Not like the crucified Christ. We'll see a hero dive off a cliff to save a damsel in distress and somehow lose his life, and we say, yeah, that's heroic. Not like Jesus. Because typically our heroes fight back, even if they must fight to the death. They struggle. They clamor for the greater good. What did Jesus do? Isaiah 53 verse 7 says, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. That would not play well in Hollywood. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth. What kind of hero is this? Peter said in 1 Peter 2.23, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He just kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You could almost say it this way, from the natural perspective, there was no fight in Jesus. No fight. He just took it. He let them beat him. He let them mock him and spit upon him. Drag him through the streets. Nail him up on a cross. He allowed all of this and said nothing. He just took it. There was nothing externally to show Jesus straining against the powers of darkness like I would think a hero should. At least say something. Do something. And so to the natural man, it's madness. The folly of the crucified Christ. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to Him. Jesus, on the other hand, said, Greater love has no one than this, than He lay down His life for His friends. John fifteen thirteen. So in the folly of the crucified Christ, the very first example out of the gate for Paul, utter foolishness by all human reckoning, we have come to see, we who are the called, have come to see both the power and the wisdom of of God. But let me tell you something, folks. You don't see that as powerful and you do not see it as wisdom without the Spirit. The Spirit has explained that, has shown that to you. Otherwise, it's crazy. It's just foolishness. 
Second point that Paul makes, he talks about the folly of our calling down there in verse 26 of chapter 1. Remember this, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. The folly of our calling. Who would call us? This is the team? This is who you choose to do the work and go all the way back to the to the eleven who were remaining after the resurrection. You have got to be kidding me. I know angels were saying that. You're giving Peter a second, third, fourth, ninth, seven hundredth chance? You're doing that for him? James and John? Who wanted to blow up a town? Are you serious? Simon's a zealot. He's completely out of control. We saw what happened with Judas. This is your team, Lord? You know, put them out on the field? It's folly. The folly of our calling. And he mentions right away humanity's big three. Remember these? Wisdom, might, and nobility or riches. That's the very first thing he says. None of you were like that. And, and truly, no human being really is. Because... As far as humanity is concerned, might is a smokescreen. Everybody dies. And nobility, riches, can fall apart like that, ask Donald Trump. Or wisdom. (laughs) Wisdom, who is really the wise? There's always someone who's got a little edge on you in terms of smarts or education or experience. It's all folly. And God says, I don't do this. And by the way, this is not a slam on the 1%. It's just true. Not many of us were much of anything when He called us. Jesus did not come seeking the tip of the top and the cream of the crop. I would have. I would have been trolling for the best in the world to be my guys. But He didn't look up the leaders. He instead visited the lowly. He didn't go after the dignified. No, he dropped in on the dregs. This was God's plan. It's madness. It's lunacy. Why not start with the good people and then if you have to, work your way down? At least then you've got a solid base to work with. And so, Luke chapter 5, verse 30 tells us the Pharisees and their scribes were grumbling at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? What are they saying? What kind of Messiah would do that? You're claiming to be Messiah? Why would you dare dirty yourself with those people? And Jesus heard them and He said to them, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Consider your calling. Sinners to repentance. That's who we are. It's not who we're supposed to be now, but it's who we were. And He has called us to repentance. And so, verse 27, God has chosen, He says, the foolish things of the world. And He goes on and says, the weak things. And in verse 28, the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. Why? So that no man may boast before God. As we talked about last week. So that everybody would stand before God with empty, open, receptive hands. Rather than closed, tight-fisted, defensive hands. But still, still, come on, Lord, it's folly. The folly of a crucified Messiah and the folly of our calling. And thirdly, Paul starts to now tap in as we get into the second chapter to the folly of champions. 
You've heard of the breakfast of champions? This is the folly of champions. Every other year, on the off year of the Olympics, people flocked to Corinth. For year after year, decade after decade, century after century, literally this went on, they all went to Corinth for the Isthmian Games. It was an Olympic-style exhibition of athletic and cultural feats. All of these athletic competitions would go on, and of course the winners would come up before the massive Bema seat, and they would receive their crowns, their rewards. They also had cultural feats, you know, of music and poetry and rhetoric. And the winners would come before the Bema again, and they would receive their rewards. And all of this was specifically to honor Poseidon the mythical Greek god of the sea. So all these champions would show up. And I share that because the Corinthians were used to champions. They knew celebrity. They were accustomed to power. And here comes to Corinth God's champion, who by his own account came to town weak, fearful, and trembling. That's God's choice, the folly of a champion. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Now Paul was capable of it. We know that. We've heard him preach before Corinth. We know that this apostle had a silver tongue if he wanted to use it had a bright mind if he so desired to use it. But he didn't come to Corinth that way. It's as if he shelved his oratorical skills back in Athens and made his way to Corinth with a different paradigm. The folly of champions. Of course, I said champions plural, right? Not just the folly of a champion as in Paul, but the folly of God's champions game. We are the champions, my friends. (laughs) We are the champions. How ridiculous is that? That the the foolhardy means of God's work is the crucified Christ. And, And the ridiculous method involves a called cadre of unwise, weak, and ignoble people who come along carrying the daft message of the cross as champions of good news. This is God's plan. What is that daft message exactly? God's champion of the gospel did not come to Corinth, again, with impressive valor. He didn't come touting credentials or qualifications. Listen again to verse 1. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. He didn't come as a jurist. He didn't come as a prosecutor. Paul came as a witness. A witness who had determined, verse 2, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the daft message. I will say that several times tonight. I want to make sure you know how ridiculous the message is. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is it. That's the business plan of the church. Rick, how do you grow a church? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Rick, how do you reach out to lost people? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
Yeah, okay, I get that. But, but how do you build and develop and, and, and extend a staff and, and bring in leadership and, and put up a structure and make an impact in this world? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's daft, but it's the only message we've got. And we are foolhardy ourselves when we start to go after other messages, thinking if there's something else that we could say, some other buzzy, exciting thing that will attract our culture, we lose. Church may get bigger for a season. More people may show up. But we lose. Because our daft message is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul came as a witness, a martyrion. A martyrion. Now, he said, I didn't come to you proclaiming with speech or wisdom proclaiming the testimony of God, the witness of God, the martyrion of God. No, I came just with one witness. I'm a witness to this, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. A martyrion. It's from that word martyr. Or that's where the word martyr comes from. And a martyr is not just someone who dies. It's someone who dies for a truth they just can't deny. You know, the martyrs didn't die because they themselves were great heroes. They died because they could not deny what they knew. They could not deny the truth that they had seen. I saw Him alive. You can kill me, but I can't tell you other than what I saw. I'm just a witness of these things. Not trying to be brave. Not trying to stand out. I just, I saw this. I saw Him. And the witness of God cannot stop speaking of Jesus because he, because she cannot deny the truth. It's Jeremiah who so honestly said in Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 9, if I say I will not remember him or speak anymore in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it and no amount of tongues helps. Jeremiah says, I'm tired of this God. In chapter 20, he is, he is burned out, exhausted, weeping, in constant trouble with the people. The message he has is a dark, dismal message, but it's the only one he has. So he keeps bringing it, and finally he says, Lord, I can't, I can't, I can't do this anymore. But then he realizes something. The moment I stop speaking, I get massive heartburn. I cannot hold it in. I start flaming out inside. We talk about burnout. Pastors burning out. Christians burning out. Well, then we were never witnesses in the first place. You might burn out on the outside, but only for a season until you realize you are burning up on the inside and you have got to share what you have seen. It's Peter and John talking to the Sanhedrin, Acts chapter 4.19. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't help it. So nail me to a cross, dip me in hot wax, light me on fire. I can't stop talking about Jesus. Why? Because I saw Him. For you and for me, because we know Him. The only way truly we can shut up as Christians is when we shut out Jesus. When we stop paying attention to Him. When we close our eyes to His holiness and say, Nah, that's for Sunday. I'll pick up on that again Wednesday night. I guess in that kind of mentality you can burn out. 
The witness sees Jesus and cannot be other, anything other than a witness. Ask yourself tonight, does that describe me? Am I a witness in faith? Am I a witness of Mark Turion? In terms of my behavior and my actions and what I'm doing day in and day out, am I, am I a witness? For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I have shared this story before, but I will share it again for those of you who never heard it. I was sitting in freshman Bible on the very first day of class alongside my roommate, Chris Goldman, who's a pastor down in Seattle now. And uh, our teacher, Lemoyne Lewis, Dr. Lemoyne Lewis, who was a very short man who spat when he spoke, I mean, there, the, there was nobody in the second or third row of the class because we realized after about the first day just these flecks of spit, you know. And, and Dr. Lewis, I just love the man, would stand up. He was old school, man. Came dressed to the nines every single class, 150 degrees in, in West Texas, and he would come dressed in his full suit and tie with, you know, sweat all around his neck, and he'd hold on to that pulpit in front of a class of 15 stupid freshman Bible majors, and he would shake the pulpit and go, the Word of God is rich. It is so rich. And his whole face was shaved. He's, the man had jowls. I'm not kidding. First day of class, Lemoyne Lewis passes out papers to the whole class. A little stack of ten pages. A test of our Bible knowledge. And the test was counted on our grade. We hadn't even had a day of class yet. But we were Bible majors. We already knew what we needed to know. We'll, we'll listen to this guy. But passes out the test and it blew us away. The best grade on the test was like a 42. And that was a guy who was brilliant. So I'm sitting next to Chris Goldman. And I see Chris look at his test. I wasn't looking at his test, but I, I noticed that he's looking like I'm looking. And we're all looking at each other like, no way, no way, I'm in the wrong class. I'm not, no, I can't go into ministry. This is, this is too hard. And I see Chris turn the test over and write something, put his name at the top, walk up, turn it in, and left the classroom. I at least tried to get my 28. I was proud of that. And I got back to our room after class and said, Chris, what did you do? And he said, did you know any of those answers? And I said, well, I, I don't know. About I thought I knew 29. I was wrong. I, it was the hardest test I've ever seen in my life. And he goes, I know. So I flipped it over and on the back I wrote, I choose only to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. <laughs> Yep, he got an F plus from the from the professor. I thought that was just that's the best. And I always knew when we got to First Corinthians chapter two, verse two, even if I told the story, I was going to tell that again. F plus. I choose only to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and we complicate matters when we look away from Jesus and forget the cross. When we get all into the programming aspects of churchianity, we lose it. We complicate everything until there's so much that we're trying to balance and maintain and take control of. And and Paul said, I just know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is how you change the world. That is how you rock Corinth and Asia and the entire Middle East and on into the West. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There was no other message. 
And there is no other message for us today. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, it is ours to speak the truth boldly. And in every case, we shall be a sweet savor unto God. But to temporize, to temporize. Now, I had to look that word up. Let me just tell you what it means. He says to temporize, which means to negotiate. To temporize or negotiate in the hope of making converts is to do evil that good may come. And this is never to be thought of for an instant. To compromise the truth in hopes that maybe if we kind of you know water it down and make it easier and more flavorful for the culture that perhaps then people will get saved. Spurgeon's right. That is not how it's done. It shouldn't even be thought of. And yet we live in a culture of contemporary temporizing. A world of negotiation. Political correctness is the negotiation of personal offense. That's what it is. I've offended someone, so I've got to find a way around offending them, saying what I want to say, but not really saying it, because if I really say it, they're going to be offended, and, and we can't offend people. I, st- I still don't understand that mentality. Now, I'm, I'm not a millennial. You know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a young boomer, I guess. I don't get it. I've been offended my whole life. I was offended this afternoon. I will probably be offended by one of you tonight before we leave. It's okay. It's okay, you know. I still have C's candy waiting for me at home. It's fine. <laughs> Offend me, you know. But in this culture, you know what the problem is with political correctness? Eventually, you will run out of things to correct. Open your mouth and you're going to offend somebody. Let me remind you that the cross is an offense. So right up front, if our message is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and it is a daft message to the natural man, then understand that message will offend. It's going to offend. Don't be surprised. Someone gets upset because you even mentioned the name of Jesus and you start talking about the cross and salvation, it's going to offend them. It will upset people. It's designed to. Because the cross stabs at the heart of the natural man who says, I can do it. No, you can't. We desperately need the cross. And it's not a crutch. It's a lifeline. It's everything. It doesn't just help you walk. It saves your life. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's a scandal on to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks. And Paul says, it's all I know. It's all I choose to know. And in verse 3, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Was he really? Fear? Paul being fearful? Now the word for fear can also indicate anxiety. So perhaps Paul was saying that. I, I, was, I was weak, and truly he was. He had been pretty beat up. And anxious because this second missionary journey was only slightly going better than the first one, which was terrible. We're talking about the missionary journeys of Paul. You remember our study through Acts? How badly things went? Paul just kept going, kept planting, kept dropping the word here and there, teaching, but it was not an easy road. He was kicked out and beat up and imprisoned, thrown down, stoned, left for dead. I mean, over and over, it just did not go well for Paul. And he comes into Corinth in his own words, weak, fearful or anxious and trembling. So some even believe that when Paul began to speak, he was stumbling on his own words. Well, why would this highly educated man be stumbling on his own words? (laughs) 
because he wasn't sure how to say what he knew he needed to say simply. Maybe because in his brilliance, he was fighting all of that desire to be eloquent and just to stick to the cross. I don't know why, but he was trembling even in his speech. And I love that in Acts 18, Acts 19, I think it's in Acts 19, while he's still in Corinth, we're told that the Lord shows up to Paul in the night by a vision. Acts 18, verse 9 and 10. And the Lord says to Paul, Do not be afraid. So he was afraid. God knew. But go on speaking and do not be silent. I'm with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Remember, he already met two of them when he came into town, Priscilla and Aquila. And boy, did they hit it off right off the bat. And so God encourages. Personally, He shows up to encourage Paul, who again had been beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. He had been run out of Thessalonica. He escaped from Berea with his life. He had been mocked in Athens. So that was the trip so far. Understanding why he was with them in weakness and fear and much trembling. Physically weakened from beatings. Emotionally spent. Spiritually unsteady, at least ministry-wise. And in verse 4 he says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now, as we've talked about, and I've driven this home so that we understand Paul's mentality. He learned in Athens that eloquence can mute the message of the cross. Eloquence shuts down the power because people become enamored by the words and they miss the cross. They don't hear about Jesus. And Paul says, I didn't come using persuasive words. That's an interesting word in the Greek. It's just one word. Persuasive words is pythos. And pythos means to bring confidence or to induce belief or to tranquilize. Persuasion, the art of persuasion, the art of tranquilizing. Paul said in Galatians 5 7, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. See, God doesn't work with persuasion. God doesn't tranquilize people. I've been to a number of Catholic funerals in my life. Funeral for a friend when I was just out of high school. Funeral for a a friend's mother, a friend's father. The most recent one, and this was actually now several years ago, but it was over in Anacortes. I went to a Catholic funeral. It was the first time I'd been in the Catholic church in Anacortes. And I remember sitting there First of all, I was just amazed. It's beautiful. I mean, if you're into sculpture and, and all that, and I had never seen the four cherubim, there they were, you know, carved and up on the, on the walls, and the stained glass and the woodwork and the, the flowing fountain. It was, it, was all, it was just beautiful. And I sat there, I was amazed by that first. That was the first thing I noticed. The second thing I noticed was the priest came in, and as he began to speak... He was smooth and calming and everything he said. He spoke a lot of Latin, which that didn't help because I was just going. 
And then, then to make matters worse, he starts walking up and down the aisle with this little canister filled with incense and he's shaking it back and forth and I'm going... <laughs> I was tranquilized! Now i got to confess with you all, everything within me as I teach yearns to persuade people. I really do. I want to see people change. I want to see people falling down and going, Yes, Jesus! Not yes, Rick, but yes, Jesus! I want that! But I don't want to see people tranquilized. I want to see them truthfulized by the Word of God. Empowered and excited and hungry. In fact, I want you to go out of here asking questions and searching the Scriptures because of something that came up and you're like, No way that's there! And then you go home and you start to study and the next thing you know, four days have gone by and you've been in the Bible every day. I've done my job. Good night. (laughs) But to tranquilize, to persuade the power of persuasion. Listen, only the Holy Spirit has the power to change a heart. Because even the most persuasive speaker, the greatest orator out, out there, might thrill you while you listen, but you walk away and go, what did we talk about? What was it that he shared? I told you, I grew up in that church. The different pastors, the different ministers that we had as as I was a kid growing up, we had one who was an historian par excellence and who actually motivated me to want to even be in ministry. And I love to just listen to him spout history. His knowledge base was astounding. But so many times, the only thing I could remember when I went home was Tiglath Pileser III. And I didn't understand what the context was. Tiglath Pileser the Third, or Tigger as I called him. I didn't know. And then we got another a young, a young pastor, pretty famous in that church fellowship. And he was dynamic. He was a drama major in college. Man, he knew how to bring it. His examples were funny. He was enlightening. And, and every time I went to church, and I remember this to this day, I went thinking, when he got up, oh, this is going to be fun. What's he going to talk about? This is going to be fun. And I don't remember a single sermon he gave, but one. I remember one. And it was a teaching in his living room with four or five other college students when I was in college. And he was talking to us about taking up our cross and following Jesus. And I I won't go into it now, but I remember specifically what he said. And the Bible was open. We were in Luke. And he taught it. And I never forgot that. Because it was the Word of God and the Holy Spirit was at work. Only the Holy Spirit can change a heart. Only God's Spirit can bring us out of our foolishness and into His wisdom. Now, Paul comes with this shaky message and without persuasive words. It was all demonstration of God's Spirit and of power. That's important because there were false teachers at Corinth even when Paul arrived. And there would be more after he left and wrote back to them. Silver-tongued flatterers who were moving among the people and trying to preach a different gospel. They were skilled in oratory and in rhetoric, but their speech, the fruit of their teaching, was as rotten as their pride. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul writes, Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon. Dad's coming home. And he says, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. This is a veiled threat from Paul, saying, I'm coming back, 
and those who claim to be super apostles, guess what? We're going to see. We'll see. And then Paul says this, important verse, 1 Corinthians 4.20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. And the power is not of the preacher, the power is of the Holy Spirit. And if you maintain any memory about what happens in here on a Wednesday or Sunday, you take anything home and it sticks, that's the Holy Spirit at work in you. All the stuff you forget, that's me. So stick, stick to the Spirit. The truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, see, that yields a lasting fruit. A different kind of fruit. Hebrews 13.15 Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. And so I read Paul here and I recognize what he learned. He teaches me that my job, our job, is not to tranquilize but to teach. It is not to persuade but to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Listen to that again, verse 5. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Okay, what does that mean? What exactly does that look like? It's a fair question. Paul says, all all I told you is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and then there was lots of power. Okay, okay. How do we understand this? Well, we know that after this, in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19, verse 11 says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So there was miraculous power in Paul's ministry. Stunning power. We also know that God did some of the same at Corinth. Well, how do we know that? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles, Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 12, he's comparing himself to the false apostles. And he's pointing out that they had no power. And he says, my message was confirmed. Now I may have been stuttering, and I may have been weak of speech, and I may have just repeated over and over and over and over Jesus Christ and Him crucified, but there was power that came with it, and that's what changed your lives was the word of truth and the power of the Holy Spirit. Those super apostles did not have it. They didn't have what, Paul? And again, he says three things. Signs, wonders, and miracles. But get this. Paul never describes any of them. He never once himself details the power that he exerted at Corinth. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he doesn't describe the person he raised from the dead, if in fact maybe he did. He he doesn't refer to the man that he gave back his ability to walk, or the woman who was healed by touching a handkerchief that Paul had touched. We know about that because Luke wrote about that one in Acts 19. Paul does not describe it himself. And get this, when he talks about power, spiritual gifts, the pneumatikos and the charisma, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, he writes this, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then Miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. There's a flow chart right there in one verse. 
1 Corinthians 12, 28 gives us a flowchart. We will come back to the flowchart when we get to 1 Corinthians 12 in several months. But the flowchart is very simply this. Three tiers. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, tier number one that is actually broken up into three tiers itself. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. That's tier number one in the power gifts of God. Tier number two. Paul uses the word then, speaking of the next thing, miracles. And finally, tier number three, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, and tongues. What does that tell us? Well, a couple of things. Number one, note this, the tiers do not negate any of the gifts. It just puts them in order. And I do believe it's intentional order of Paul. He puts these spiritual gifts in a very specific, orderly position. And positionally, tier one is for the kingdom, which is why it's the most important. Apostles, prophets, teachers. Apostles are church planners. Prophets are truth tellers. Teachers are Bible instructors. And Paul says, that's the most powerful set of gifts right there. More important than any others, tier one. Tier two is miracles. Why is that second? It's about evangelism. First we have all the gifts that are for the kingdom and the building of the kingdom and then gifts of evangelism, miracles that would draw people's attention so they would listen to and hear the word of God preached. And then tier three, healing, helps, administration and tongues. My friends, that's ministry in the body. So tier one, the kingdom. Tier two, evangelization of the world. Tier three, ministry in the body. And it's very orderly and it's very powerful and all of these gifts are legitimate. But it's so easy for us to make a natural assumption, a natural assumption and get used to the difference between natural and supernatural because we're going to deal with that a lot in this letter. But it's easy to make the natural assumption that the demonstration of the Spirit and power is all signs and wonders ignoring tier one. You tell me, what is the ultimate supernatural demonstration of the Spirit and of power? Is it not a changed heart? It is not the resurrection from the dead, although we all will be. It's not causing the sick to walk again. And again, I've said this recently. You heal someone who's sick, they're going to get sick again. You raise someone from the dead, they're going to die again until the final resurrection. So all of the so-called power gifts that people would look to and think, well, that's what I want to see, the signs and wonders, guess what? They're all limited. But tier one is unlimited. Planting churches, prophesying the truth of God, teaching the Word of God, and the Spirit takes that, changes a heart... And the heart that's changed, that's the miracle. That's the power. When the daft message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified is championed, faith is stirred by the power of the Spirit of God. When we don't speak the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the world just says you're weird. Now they're going to say it when we say Jesus Christ and Him crucified anyway, but it's going to pierce a heart. And that's the difference between the foolishness of God and the foolishness of of a Christian trying to come up with another method. Foolishness of God takes us right to the cross and the Spirit works there. 
Jesus said, John 16, 8, He, when He comes, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, John 16, 13, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. And the Spirit, Jesus also says, He's going to speak to you of Me. He will glorify Me. He will remind you of Me. Now, if the daft message is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, what? Are we just supposed to speak that over and over and over and over? Because I'm assuming you're here tonight on a Wednesday in the middle of the week because you already know about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I can share that message again tonight, and at best you would just join me in full-hearted agreement. Yes! He died for me. Yes, praise the Lord. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I accept that message. But is that the only thing we're supposed to do? Just speak this message over and over and over and over? And Paul answers that, but I will tell you this much. To the non-believer, yes. To the non-believer, your message, like a broken record, coming out of my generation, I know we don't have really records so much, but the daft message is Jesus Christ and Him crucified to the non-believer that's what I've got to talk about the cross the cross the cross but when someone receives Jesus Christ and Him crucified now we move on verse 6 yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature a wisdom however not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Now check this out. Two words to note in these two verses. They're both M words. Maturity and mystery. Maturity and mystery. Paul says we speak wisdom to the mature in a mystery. But I'll go ahead and get ahead of myself here. The mature already know the mystery. We've read the end of the book. Okay, It's not a mystery anymore. But before we get there... To the mature, we speak wisdom, the wisdom of God. The mature, the teleos, is the word. Does that sound familiar? It's the same root word that Jesus cried out, the last word He spoke on the cross, tetelestai. The teleos, tetelestai, maturity, the finished work. It is finished. So to be mature in God is to have the finished work of redemption in your life, the finished work. To be mature is to be involved in the finishing work of sanctification. We are being finished. And Paul would write in Philippians 1.6, one of my favorite verses, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the maturity. You will, you are being matured in Christ Jesus. You accepted the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and now it's about maturity. You know what that means? It means that you ought to be different now than you were before you accepted Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You should be different. It should change us. It should alter our perspective, change our mentality, soften our harshness, round the sharp corners and edges of our lives. We're maturing. Why does it take so long to mature? (laughs) 
Bless you, Joel. You rolled your eyes. I can't tell you how much more mature you are at your age than I was when I was your age. I'm just saying. It takes so long. I want to be there, but I'm here. Why does it take so long? When Cheryl and I were building our house, stupidly, we told Niccolo, listen, we want to save some money, so we'll do the finishing. (laughs) Let me just tell you, if you've never built a house and you have some bright idea that you're going to save money by doing the finishing work yourself, it's more than painting. A lot more. And we got down to the end, and Niccolo was finishing up, and I'm looking around and going, well, when are you going to do that? Oh, well, that's the finishing work. Oh. I knew that. Okay, but, but when are you going to take care of this? Well, that's, that's, that's finishing. We're in trouble. We're in big trouble. I don't know if I've told you this, but 65 people from this fellowship finished our house. I have never been so blessed. It was amazing. We just kind of put the word out. Pastor Rick is a pastor, which people knew instantly meant he didn't know how to build a house. (laughs) And they just showed up and they finished the house and it took a long time. Listen, maturity is a process. It takes your life. It takes your life. And when you're ready, God will say, done. Come on. The finishing work of the gospel. But listen, in the maturation of the saints, we do not dumb down the gospel. We are to grow in our knowledge, our understanding. Listen to how Paul says it. I want to read you two passages. Just listen to these. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, which is huge. Verse 11 Paul writes, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed in here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. How can we not be tossed about? By knowing the truth. By knowing the doctrines of Scripture. By studying the book of Romans. By taking our time to go through 1 Corinthians. Understanding the Hebrew Scriptures. All of this builds and builds and builds. And the wonderful thing about the Word of God is it builds on itself. So when you study one letter and then you go to the next, suddenly you'll be remembering things from the previous letter or the previous book. And it will lock in stuff that you did not understand when we were in the Minor Prophets. Guess what? By the time we finish the New Testament, you're going to remember that stuff. And it will build on itself. And you will mature. And that's the process that we are in. Paul put it this way, in great frustration... Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13. Actually, verse 11. Let me read you this. Concerning Him, he's talking about a guy named Melchizedek, but we won't go into that right now. Concerning Him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And so you have come to need milk and not solid food. Know what milk does? It makes you burp. It doesn't give you the protein and the energy you need long term. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. 
But solid food is for the mature who because, listen, who because, okay, don't miss this, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. What does that mean? That means what you learn in here, you practice through the week. You walk out through the week. You don't set it aside and go, that was nice. You work it out. Paul says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, the elementary teaching about the Christ, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, is elementary teaching. It is teaching for the lost. It is our message, our gaffed message to everyone who doesn't know Jesus, and it's a message we ought to be familiar with and speak all the time. But we leave that message when we gather together. We don't leave Christ, but we leave the elementary teaching. And we press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. We should all understand what repentance is about. And of faith toward God, do we not get faith? And of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And what's interesting is in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 6 are more of the questions I get constantly than just about anything else in Scripture. Can you explain to me the laying on of hands? Well, according to Paul, the mature believer already understands that. Well, could you explain to me, Rick, about the resurrection from the dead? What's, what's that really about? Well, the mature believer already gets that. I don't get baptism. Can you explain that one to me? Well, washings is in here, and eternal judgment, all that. That stuff that we learn, that's, that's Jesus 101. But we're maturing. Okay, We're not taking the test for the first time and getting to 28. No, we're maturing. And this we will do if God permits. And so Paul was big on this. The Word is never stagnant. It is wisdom and it is power and it is the very revelation of the Spirit of God. little hint for you. If you sit in here on a Wednesday or even on a Sunday and you're just lost, the very first thing you need to do is, well, get a Bible. Okay? <laughs> if you don't have a Bible in your lap, there's your problem right there, Vern. But once you get a Bible... Once you get a Bible and you're struggling understanding, what do you do? Right then and there, Holy Spirit, I don't get this. I need you to teach me. You don't need Pastor Rick to teach you. You need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And this you already have, John says, and this you know. So you say, Spirit, right now, I'm not getting this. Will you clarify this for me? And ask the Spirit to do what the Spirit loves to do. In the Spirit, the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That's what Paul's talking about. You see why we're not going to finish chapter 2 tonight? (laughs) The wisdom of God. It is for the mature. And it is a wisdom that we cannot plumb its depths. And yet at the same time, we are to drop our lines. We are to grow. And His Word will elevate mind and spirit like no wisdom humanity has ever produced. Man, Dr. Phil could sit up here and I would sleep. But bring the Word of God. The mature wisdom. The other word is mysterion. Note that again. That's in verse 7. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom of God. The mysterion. Paul already introduced that in chapter 1. Now he says it again in chapter 2. He will say it more times throughout Corinth, the letter to Corinth and, and 2 Corinthians and then Galatians and Ephesians. We're going to talk a lot about the mysterion and it's marvelous, but you already know it. See, the mysterion is not an unsolvable obscurity. It's God's mystery proclaimed by the prophets revealed in the person 
of Jesus Christ. Now you might ask the question, Paul says it's the mystery that was hidden, predestined before the ages, hidden down through the ages, brought in in the interesting language of the prophets, that we understand because right now we look back at Isaiah 53 and we see the cross. But when Isaiah first spoke Isaiah 53, the Jewish people went, What? He was pierced through for our transgressions? What does that mean? They'd never seen a crucifixion. They didn't know what that meant. Well, does that mean that his heart's going to be broken? He was really pierced, you know? Does that mean he's going to go down to a tattoo parlor? And I mean, What does it mean? Pierced through. They didn't understand. It was hidden. Why? Why was it hidden? Two reasons. Number one, to his glory. It was hidden, the mystery of God, to the glory of God. Proverbs 25, verse 2, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter... It's the glory of kings to search out a matter. His glory is that He knows what we do not know. He can conceal things. He can bring mysteries because His knowledge is unfathomable. Beyond us. 27 and a half trillion years into eternity and God's still going to be sparking mysteries and we're going to be going, Whoa! I didn't know that. No, because you're not me. The mysteries of God. It is to His glory. And in verse 8, Paul says, The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified, note this phrase, the Lord of glory. It is the loftiest title that Paul uses for Jesus. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What Paul does in the moment he writes that is say, they would not have crucified God. Because no Jew would refer to a human being as the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory is God. Yahweh. Paul said if they had realized what they were doing, if they had understood the mystery of God, they never would have killed God, the Lord of glory. Aside from calling Jesus our God and our Savior, Titus 2.13, this is the highest title that Paul ascribes to Jesus, and it ascribes Jesus' divinity. He knew the divinity of the one who had called him. Do you? Now, now, don't answer that too quickly. Do you know, do you recognize beyond lip service the divine, awesome, holy, God nature of Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory? And if we do, then why doesn't it change our behavior? If He's the Lord of glory, why am I still doing stuff now at 51 than I did at 15? If I recognize Him as the Lord of glory, that alone should shake the sin right out of my life. He is God. Don't forget that. Oh, but He's grace. I know. Miraculously, marvelously, supernaturally, beyond comprehension, He is a God of all grace, but He is also God. Don't forget, that is who Jesus is. And we will see Him, and in His coming, we will be on our knees before the Lord of glory. But get this, this divinely concealed glorious mystery, Paul says it kept the rulers in the dark. The rulers. They didn't see what was going on. And the reason they were kept in the dark was so sin could be dealt with once and for all in Jesus' perfect sacrifice. 
God kept it quiet, presented it as a mystery to His glory. He spoke through the prophets so that the rulers of this age, and Paul's saying this age, which specifically is His age, which was the beginning of the church age, so it's our age too. But back then, he's saying the rulers of this age did not know when they crucified Him. Did not know what they were doing. They didn't know the mystery. They didn't understand it. What rulers is he talking about? Who are the rulers? Hmm? Pharisees. Jewish leaders. Romans, perhaps. Rulers. I suggest something else to you. And I think that you guys are right. But I think there were rulers behind the rulers. What less? The demonic realm. The rulers of this age did not recognize it. Gang, Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything that's going to happen. He is a good student of the Bible, better than a whole lot of Christians. He studies the Word inside and out to try and discern and know what God's doing and when He's going to do it and how it's going to happen. But He's not omniscient. And so God had to present in a mystery something that Satan could not understand so He could not keep it from happening. And as a matter of fact, when Jesus was crucified, Satan thought, that was it! I won! <laughs> yes! Woohoo! The demons celebrate the death! We finally blocked... God and then Jesus resurrected. Can you imagine the look on Satan's face? Because in the moment of the resurrection, he realized there was no stopping the plan of God. The mysteries revealed. And Satan couldn't stop it. That debate, by the way, about who the rulers are has raged on since the days of origin in the second century AD. People are debating, well, was it the was it the Pharisees and the and the Romans or was it the demonic realm? And I say yes. Because the Romans and the Pharisees were driven by the demonic realm. It was rulers on earth, the natural rulers, and it was supernatural rulers. All, none of them got it. They did not understand the mystery. Paul says in Ephesians 3 verse 8, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So God, to His glory, is telling the rulers and principalities and authorities in the spiritual realm, He's telling the answer. He showed them what the mystery was all about. And all of them, angels and demons alike, Realize the glory of God. To His glory. Ephesians 6.12 Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. The powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Don't miss that. The rulers that we see naturally are either going to be led by God or they are going to be driven by demons. Why is there such conflict in the world? Why do world rulers mess things up so badly? Well, it depends on who they're listening to, doesn't it? Well, Satan was blindsided, disarmed at the cross to the glory of God. Colossians 2.7 tells us that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Disarmed them. Cut their arms off. 
Which means that in Jesus Christ, Satan has no more power over you. He cannot make you do anything. All he can do is terrorize you. All he can do is lie to you. You decide if you're going to believe him or not. But he cannot direct you. He doesn't have arms to do it. I've told you before, he's the Black Knight in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. (laughs) Come back here. What are you going to do? Bleed on me. You know, I love it. He's disarmed. But there's another reason. Another reason that God kept this a mystery that absolutely blows my mind. It's not just to His glory. Did you catch it? It's to ours. Look back at verse 7. This is God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Wow. That, that is stunning. What he's saying is we are those, and he repeats this, Colossians 1.27, we are those to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. God did this to His glory, and God did this to your glory, to our glory. It's almost hard to believe that we who were so foolish... Consider your calling, brethren. We weren't wise, we weren't mighty, we weren't noble, and yet God presents a mystery that's revealed in Jesus Christ to our glory. And it's all because of the folly of the cross, that daft message. It brings us to Him empty-handed and without boasting. And what does He do? He turns around and glorifies you. And Colossians 3.4 says, When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Verse 9. But, just as it is written, I love this, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Don't you love that verse? That's a favorite among many people. It's also often incorrectly quoted and widely misapplied. Let me read it again. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, before I explain the misapplication, the context is Israel. The context goes back to the days of Isaiah, actually the days after Isaiah, but it's a quote from Isaiah prophesying the people of Israel crying out from captivity. And thinking that that God had forgotten them, but Isaiah comes along and prophesies this message over a century before their capture, Isaiah 64, verse 4, From the days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for Him. But that's different. I mean, the the idea is there, right? No eye has seen, no ear has heard. But that's not what Paul says here in verse 9. And what Isaiah said in Isaiah 64 is not exactly the same thing. So clearly your scriptures are messed up. A. The Holy Spirit can rephrase whatever he wants. B. Paul doesn't say, I'm exactly quoting this. In fact, he uses a very Jewish phrase, just as it is written, which is referring to, you all remember that verse, Isaiah 64, and we do this all the time, don't we? 
We say, you know the verse about, uh, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, or something like that. You know what I'm saying, right? Or we'll say, no one has a greater love than that he die for his friends. Well, that's not exactly right, Rick. It's greater love hath no one than this. And you've got to say it in the Elizabethan or you're way off. <laughs> No, Paul is just referring back to Isaiah 64, verse 4. And if you want to know the exact writing, you can look it up. But when he says this, the Holy Spirit is speaking through Paul, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, I do have to make this comparison because I think it's beautiful. In Isaiah 64, verse 4, he says, all these things are in behalf of the one who waits for Him. Paul translates it, prepared for those who love Him. Well, which is it? Is it those who wait for Him or those who love Him? Yes. Yes. Right now, I am waiting for Cheryl to come home. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, she and the kids are down in Monroe. She's doing a a training for uh, Classical Conversations. And she's going to be back. I'm waiting for her to come home. Why are you waiting, Rick? Because I love her. I do. And I can't wait till she comes home tomorrow night because I'm hungry, man. No, that's not it. (laughs) I wait because I love her. I love her, so I wait. And so what's interesting is this Hebrew word in Isaiah 64, verse 4, that's translated waits, also means literally a loving longing for. I wait longingly. I wait lovingly. Paul was right. Thing... Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. The Second Timothy 4.8, Paul says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. How do you love His appearing? Well, in the moment of His appearing, I'm going to be enamored with Him. But until His appearing, I love His appearing by longing for His appearing. Right? I'm waiting, I'm loving, it's the same concept. Now, here's the misapplication of the verse. Things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man. Some say, see, the Bible says we can't know what God is doing. It's a mystery. So we can't know. So why waste our time studying the book of Revelation? It's just confusing. Why waste our time in Scripture? It, it's, it's all a mystery. Okay, wrong. Others say, it's just talking about heaven. You know, that, that heaven is so great, it's just beyond comprehension or description. We haven't seen it, we haven't heard it, and, and it hasn't entered the heart of man, and therefore he's talking about heaven. You know what? Both of those concepts are wrong because they didn't read the next verse. Verse 10. For to us God revealed them. Through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Note that. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and has not entered into the heart of man, God revealed through the Spirit. Verse 9 is not a mystery for you if you know Jesus because the Spirit has already revealed it to you. Or will reveal it to you. Things which eye has not seen. Heaven. I have not seen heaven, but I have a pretty clear picture of heaven. I do. Things which ear has not heard. So many people say, I've never heard the voice of God. Bet you have. You just didn't know it was Him. And the more you're in His Word, and the more you pray, the more you will hear the voice of God. 
And He will come quietly, sometimes as an impression, sometimes He'll speak to you through another believer, sometimes a verse will jump out and you'll know and it's the answer to what you've been praying all day long. And sometimes you will hear the Lord say, I need you to do this. Wait, you believe God speaks audibly? Audibly? Yes. Oddly and audibly. You believe that, Rick? Yes. How? I'm a witness. And I've heard it. And He is very clear. Things which I have seen and not seen and ears not heard and has not entered into the heart of man, He has revealed by His Spirit. And so the mystery is revealed, gang. Not by sight, sound, emotional experience, but by the Spirit of the living God. Things God has already revealed here and now. But here's the problem. The natural man cannot see these things, cannot hear these things, cannot perceive these things. No natural man or woman can without divine intervention. It has to come of the Spirit of God. Because the only person who can truly reveal to us who God is, is God. Doesn't that make sense? He knows Himself a whole lot better than you do. Better than anybody does by His own Spirit. Job chapter 12, verse 22, He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deep darkness into light. Romans eight twenty seven. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we talked about that in Romans. Powerful verse, because the searcher of hearts is Jesus, who knows the mind of the Spirit, who belongs to God. So Jesus, who is God, intercedes for us, knowing the mind of the Spirit, which is the Spirit of God, and so intimately integrated the Trinity. And in this integration, God tells us of Himself. The Spirit expresses us things we have not seen or heard or haven't entered into the heart of man. The Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And Paul, and this is the last verse we're going to do tonight, Paul uses a human analogy to explain this. Verse 11, he says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Joel, who knows you better than you know yourself? Well, God does, because God created Joel. But next to God, nobody knows Joel better than Joel. I don't. I haven't got him figured out yet. But he knows himself. And so, he shares himself in relationship and gets to know friends and those who become friends of Joel understand who Joel is. Why? Because Joel reveals to them who he is. And that's what the Spirit does. He reveals to us who God is. So without the Spirit revealing these things, we could not know God. We would not know God. And Jesus Christ and Him crucified is a daft and ridiculous message. So sum it up. The folly of God can only be understood for what it truly is. Spiritual, glorious, godly wisdom. Surpassing all wisdom of the natural man can only be known when the Spirit tells us. And Paul says what the Holy Spirit is saying here in a nutshell is this. Let me show you. Let me show you God. You want to know God? 
Let me show you God. It's what the Spirit longs to do. Let me just read to the end of the chapter and we'll come back and look at it Sunday. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. I know it says thoughts and words, those are added in. Pneumatikos with pneumatikos, spiritual things with spiritual things. I'll explain that Sunday. Or we'll try to. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. It is so rich. It is so powerful. We've got to wait till Sunday. And we will. And we'll come back and look at it then. Father... Father, Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, Lord of glory, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for boiling it down to us and making it simple to understand. Thank You first and foremost for the crazy message of the cross. And Lord, I do not say that disrespectfully. I say it recognizing that it is a message the world does not understand. The message of a pierced Savior... Oh, but Father, I do know this. It is the only message that pierces the heart. So I pray that that message will be fresh and constant among us. And then as we gather, Father, would You mature us as a fellowship? Mature us in our personal walk of faith. Father, show me in my life where I am out of step with Your Spirit and correct my steps. Bring me to the place, Father, where I need to be to walk clean by You. Fill me, Lord Jesus, with Your Holy Spirit. And I pray this for all of us together. And I believe we share an absolute agreement. We want to know You, God. We want to walk with You. And we recognize by Your Word tonight that it will only happen if it is by Your Spirit. Holy Spirit, come and be poured out among us. Flow in this place like living water. And change our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Cool. Hey, be thinking about those verses, verse 12 through the end of the chapter. You might just kind of chew on those a bit over the next few days, and we'll really break it down on on Sunday, Lord willing. God bless you all.